Hey, what's up, everybody? This is The Legendary Tales, the podcast where we talk you through things that are legendary, not just cryptids and unicorns, but people, movies, uh, banknotes. We, we haven't done banknotes. Um, banknotes. I don't know. What, why did isn't I that just a, Isn't that just like an old-fashioned term for money? Yeah, no, literally, it's because... I actually am going to mention banknotes in what I'm talking about today. So I, for some reason, that just... And I am Isadora Martin Dye, one of your hosts. And with me, as always, in the room is Adam Bloor. Hello, everyone. Who, in a matter of weeks, will be a graduate. That's pretty weird to think about, isn't it? I know. We're going to have to throw you, like, a little on our legendary graduation party. That'd be cool. We could do a live stream. We could live stream a graduation party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how I'm going to have to do it. I know. Anyway. Aww. Which is fine. I'd, I wouldn't have gone to my graduation if I had graduated the first time anyway. And this is how his father found out he never graduated, because it turns out... <laughs> <laughs> that is not an avid listener of the podcast. No, thank God. Or else you would have found out right now that oh, you didn't man. graduate the wouldn't first that, time around. Wouldn't that be awful? <clears throat> All right. The truth. So, uh, I don't know. We don't have much housekeeping this week. It's been really well, next busy. Next week is going to be our 50th. Yep, next week will be our 50th. And we're going to go... What we're going to do this week is Adam and I are going to go back through our previous episodes mm -hmm. look at some of the stuff we've covered and touch base on anything new that's come out about the stuff we've covered yeah. and it will be kind of more of a chatty and i guess if it, any of you want to hear anything specific yeah maybe if you've heard of some new developments in a podcast episode that you really liked let us know and we'll... yeah, yeah yeah or if you just have any questions it's going to be much more mm. of like a a chatty reminisce walk down memory lane yeah. episode it'll be like the end of season one basically yeah kind of we could probably split it up that way maybe um, we will um, yeah. And then the week after, we have decided to go back to our... Some spooky roots. Some supernatural roots. Yeah. Um, so that will be the week after. And other than that, we've just been really busy working. Yeah, it's been a crazy couple of weeks. And it's not, like, looking like it's going to slow down very no, much. No, we're still on lockdown. Yep. Until, uh, yeah, because the, the only important date for, for us on this property is that the golf course is open back up in... 12 days. Yes, that is a very important... Um, it's not. It's 10 days, isn't it? I thought it was the 29th. Uh, I thought it was 12th. Well, it's the 17th. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> um, yep. One of us is right. <laughs> Probably Adam. Um, yeah, so Ben and I are really looking forward to that. Um, yep, so the golf courses are reopening, and then the only thing that matters to me is on April 12th, non-essential shops reopen, yep. which means I can go buy some tile, <laughs> which is like I can go to another building, which is like a really boring house shopping is not fun. Really. No, it's stressful. Not as bad as light shopping. Light fix shopping for light fixtures is light shopping is dumb. Light fixture shopping, like when I buy a light from the property, just like one. When I choose a light, yeah, I give myself so much credit. Like that's an entire day it of is. like productive day if I can choose a light. You have to match it with so many things. I can buy a whole bathroom suite in two and a half minutes. Yeah. But a light, I'm like, well, yeah, right. it's a shame, really. They're such, <clears throat> they're so important to a room. They really are. They really, really are. Well, they should be. Yeah, they should be really important. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But that makes it difficult. So anyway, but then we're not 12th. talking about lights. Maybe we could talk about. Oh, I wanted to do Edison at one point, and then I completely forgot about it. Or Tesla, because electricity is really cool. But maybe, maybe, well, maybe I the mean, week after. The week after next. Okay, what if we do a theme the week after the week after next? People that are known, but other people who should be known instead of them. That's fair. We could do that. You um, know. There's lots of that. Because wasn't that the whole thing? Edison yeah, did Edison, Edison's like roommate invented the light bulb yeah. that he took credit for the idea. Yeah, what that. we'll do is an episode of people who are legendary who really shouldn't because well, all they did like, was take a 
take it, credit for other people's it's, like it's not like he wasn't involved i think it wasn't like he was just some like street peddler who like was like <laughs> looking in through that guy's window and saw him like making the light bulb i think he was involved in some way but not as like the creator of the yeah. light bulb um and i also want to do one on capability brown we were talking mm. about so we might do another gardens one yeah if we do a gardening episode we were thinking we'd have ben on again cuz yeah. ben's monty ben Monty Ben. Big gardener. Well, there's garden. There's. I'd like to do Capability Brown. I think he's always wanted to do the tulip brush. Yeah, and I don't really have a gardening. We did do a gardening one once because I did plant hunters, and you did. I did the trees. And you did trees. Yeah, so did, maybe like, we'll do another gardening one. Trees. As spring is approaching. As spring is approaching. It's beautiful. Yeah. So we have lots of ideas. Wow. Let's see if we follow through with literally any of those. I know we will next week because we have to. It's, yeah. And it's, then spooky the week after. Yeah. Supernatural the week after. I think that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. And then, yeah, we'll be good. We've yeah. got the next four episodes planned. Thank you guys for listening to our production <laughs> meeting. That is the end of the Legendary Tales. <laughs> Feel free to turn off. You don't need to listen to anything. People else. might like this stuff. Who knows? Yeah. We, never, we, we don't really do long rambly intros normally. No. And, and compared to some of the podcasts I've listened to. We've gone like five minutes. With five minutes, <laughs> not 55 <laughs> minutes of rambly intros. Yeah, so I think that's fine. I okay. think that's fine, which is good because cool. I'm I don't I'm not scant on information today, but it's going to be a light a lightish one for me. Well, the person that I wanted to do my episode on, I literally managed to find one paragraph of information. Oh, I have a little bit more than that. So I then I, I then expanded it. Okay. But yeah, no. It's cool. Great. Perfect. Well, Let's then do it. You get you get to listen to our, the production meeting before this. Yeah. So I'm talking about um, Joseph Opinel today, um, and I chose this person um, because if you don't know me, I'm I'm quite addicted to pocket cutlery. I have been like my entire life. Oh, just so you know, the theme of the episode really is like craft. Yeah, jo- Joseph Opinel is a French craftsman, but this is like the yeah. reason I chose yeah. this. Um, it's probably just a result of being like born in the Midwest because that's like a very common thing is like your grandpa's always got a pocket knife yeah. on him for cutting twine and cutting apples and stuff and like doing yeah. all that sort of thing. Um, and so that's, it's, that's a thing that sort of has become part of like my identity. Um, and I was looking through an LL Bean catalog, my <laughs> senior year of, of high school. Um, and I saw, so cool. I saw, an ad, I'm, I'm like the coolest person alive. I saw an advertisement for uh, an open L pocket knife and I was like, wow, that looks really neat. It's got like a wooden and it's got like this cool like shape. I was like, I want one of those, and so I bought one. And then I like fell in love with the company like immediately. They're, they're it's like the knife I have in my pocket all the time. I was about to say, what Adam's learned to do is carry a knife with him everywhere he goes. What I've learned to do is whenever I need a knife, find out. To yell for Adam. <laughs> ben uh, has the same knife now too. Yes, uh, it's a very popular knife um, in many countries and in this family. Yeah, uh, they're great. And so I did some research on on the the founder who basically sort of brought. The company into the modern yeah. era. Um, I got all of the information from OpenLab.com. They have a really good like historical breakdown of okay. the family. Um, so we're just gonna jump right into it. Uh, Joseph Openell was born in 1872. He was the eldest son of Daniel Openell, who was a famed French edge maker, which basically meant if a tool had an edge on it, he was making it. So bill hooks, um, sides, farmers would yeah. come around to get them from uh, from Daniel. He was born in southern France near the Alps uh, and grew up working in his grandfather's blacksmithing shop. Um, when Joseph turned 18, while he was working in the family forge, he found that he had a real passion for like modern mechanical technology, like presses and okay. stampers and things like that. And he mm, won- Super modern. 
Um, Modern for the the late 1800s, yeah. early 1900s. <laughs> um, he was actually a wedding photographer. Like when he was 18, he was like, he loved cameras and he loved taking pictures. So he was like an event photographer for a while. Um, but he wanted to create an object in which an object which he could manufacture using modern technology. Um, and this is sort of where the, this knife was born. His grandfather was like, no, no, we make everything by hand. And he was like, but like if we use machines, we can make it so much faster and more efficient. Um, and it didn't like really cause any problems. He was just sort of this like trend. Just trying to add some drama into yeah, the story. Yeah, obviously, obviously. It was a row. He led. He fled. <laughs> he fled. He, he went to Paris, <laughs> found the Moulin Rouge, hotel with a few people, drunk some absinthe. He came back a broken, desperate man and his grandfather was like, I told you. I told you. This is and what happens when you use dye presses. And then he was like, but son, Grandson, <laughs> we will, we will try it your way. We will try it your way. Finally, I will. <laughs> I accept I, you now that you've yes. been gone for years. Yes, and and now back to the story. Now back to the story. Now back to the true story. <laughs> um, and that was a pocket knife. First, I, I'm guessing it's just because he grew up with a grandfather who was making edged mm -hmm. tools. It's just what what he knew. Um, they're really they were really cheap to make. They used they used locally sourced beech wood, which is just like apparently a disease in France. Uh, a high carbon steel, um, and they were very affordable to buy. Okay. Um, locally sourced beech wood is a disease in France. No, I don't know. Beech wood is just like really prevalent in the okay. south of France. I'm just gonna start back from yeah. Uh, beech wood was a disease. No, I'm what? gonna start before that. Um, okay. So they used locally sourced. Locally sourced beech wood handles. I guess beech wood is very prevalent in the south of France. I don't know anything about the botany of that area, but apparently it's true. Um, a high carbon steel, which was very cheap to make, um, and so they were affordable to buy, which meant that almost immediately they were very popular among like the farmers in the area because southern France is mostly agricultural mm -hmm. uh, work. And his big thing was he wanted to make them in different sizes. So from one, one centimeter blades to 11 centimeters was what yeah. they started producing. And then with the corresponding handle sizes, because he wanted to make something that more people could use because people have different size hands and things. So, okay. I mean, the advertisements are really cool. Like they're like these 19, like 1900s, like uh, the block press yeah. images. And they're they just really neat. And they've got like the one centimeter to 11 centimeters. They're just like pretty to look at. I like things from that era. Um, in 1901, so he was 19 at this point, mm -hmm. uh, he had really good like commercial success and he needed to move the factory. So they moved out of his grandfather's blacksmithing shop to the Pont de Gavouda. Nicely done. It, it's French. Sure. Um, and his workshop was the first one to have electricity in the village where he was working. Nice. Um, and he had lights installed all, along the lane Radical. heading toward his shop. And there was a, apparently a quote from an older woman who was living in the village, who said, how did he get the oil all the way down through the electrical lines? Because electricity was still fairly new, and I thought that was kind of funny. Sweet. Very sweet. Um, this is when they chose their logo. Um, this is a famous thing, if you know anything about this company. It's a, it's a hand. It's a, It looks a bit like this. Yeah, that's helpful on a podcast. You can't see this. It's basically like a, a if you're doing like, I don't know how to describe it, but we'll, it'll be the image in the, uh, for the, I gotta do that. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be the image for the. Okay. So no. Okay. Thing. So it's like if you were making like a gun like finger, gun gun, gun symbol like with gun your hand, gun, gun finger with your height, but inverted with the back of your hand facing you. Turn it upside down so the thumb's facing down and the back of your hand is facing you. Okay. And then there's a crown, like uh, like there's, there'd be a crown at the point of your fingers. Okay. Um, and this symbol. Okay. Uh, he got from the 
crest of arms from the nearby village, and it's okay. the, the hand of John the Baptist. So basically, in in the 1500s, when um, the king of France at the time said that anyone who was making a tool had to stamp it with a specific like coat to as like a seal of authenticity, basically. Yeah. Joseph brought this like back, and this, okay. so this is the stamp we're using. And so the hand is John the Baptist, and that's like meant to be like a blessing. And then the crown is to remind people that Savoy, Savoy, which is the region in which the knives okay. are made, is a duchy. Okay. Um, just like a bit of a. I don't know if it's like a flex or just to basically be like Savoie is a, an important part of France, but okay. it's a really cool logo. It's highly iconic. It's okay. familiar. Um, and they just like continued to become more and more popular. In yeah. 1911, they won a gold medal at the Alpine Expedition in France. Four years later, in 1915, they expanded again. He bought an old tannery in Saint Jean de Marin, okay. uh, which he and his sons renovated. It burnt down 11 years later because they were, the way that they make the handles uh, using the lathe produced a lot of wood chips and they mm -hmm. were still using wood burning fires to like heat the steel and stuff. Okay. And one of the workers like didn't put the fire out at the end of the day. So they basically had a workshop full of kindling. Yeah, okay. it, almost, so. almost exactly. Yeah. And it burnt the whole shop down, but they were able to rebuild it in the exact same location like months later. Okay. Um, bigger, better, more suited to what they needed. Less flammable. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if it was actually less flammable. It might have been more flammable, but... Um, and then Joseph uh, died in 1960 at the age of 88. He was very successful with his business. Um, but he left this, like, amazing legacy with this company. Um, the knife is, like, incredibly popular in and out, out of France. Uh, the design has been largely unchanged for most of the century. And in 1985, the Victoria and Albert Museum yeah. uh, listed it in... The, in and in 1985, the Victoria and Albert Museum listed it in a list. Oh, my God. In 1985, <laughs> the Victoria and Albert Museum put it in a list of 100 best items in, made in the world. Wow. Alongside the Porsche 911 and Rolex watches. In 1989, it became it was so ubiquitous that by the late 1900s, it was added to the French Dictionary. And it's based open out like in France is a knife with a wooden handle that, okay. that folds. Uh, in 2006, it was included in the Fade and Design Classics, which is like a tome of anything that's basically ever been engineered. And a, a group of juries like look through all of these lists of items okay. and it's included in, in, in that list. And it was one of the 999 most successful designs of the last like 200 years or something. Last year was the company's 130th anniversary. And they released some commemorative kitchen knives, I think, uh, to celebrate. There, It's... Uh, a highly successful business. <clears throat> in 2019, the product was sold in more than 70 countries, moving more than 5.5 million across the globe. In 2016, they franchised into the States. Okay. There's a, I, I don't know if it's a plant or just a like shop in, yeah. in Chicago. So there's now an American distribution um, location, which is really cool. neat. It was known for years as the peasant knife because it was, you could buy yeah. it for like pence. Um, the equivalent of pence or pennies if you're American, which and I now am. it's known as the hipster knife. It is very, yeah, it's very, it's very popular among French farmers. Backpackers like love this thing. Like when I was in France over the summer, everyone, I'll get well first. I was in France, but also when you're among backpackers, it's yeah. a, it's incredibly popular. It's super lightweight, super cheap, um, and they have a line of like chef knives that are incredibly popular as well. Uh, it's rumored, although I couldn't find any 
evidence of Picasso actually saying this, but he apparently used one when he was like carving the reliefs for his statues, like before he would actually carve them out of marble. Kind of makes marble. sense. Yeah, uh, I believe that. He would use one as well. Um, I liked this. I found it on their website. They still use like locally sourced beech wood. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I have such a problem saying that. Um, but 90% of it is like sustainably farmed cool. beech wood from France, yeah. which is really cool. Um, when you use a renewable resource like that, yeah. I think like just very important. So yeah. I admit that I could continue supporting this company. Um, and yeah, that's basically it. It's just like, it's just a, a thing. Um, it's sort of become this like aesthetic icon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's people describe it as like a piece of history. Um, and I think it's really cool when you examine tools from a region from a certain time period, it really exemplifies what that region needed their tools for. Like when, whenever. So was it really just like the first pocket knife? It wasn't the first one. No, because Rome in Rome, they were using pocket knives. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, it's, it was the first one that achieved commercial success. As seemingly, a yeah. In in, a, in America, in yeah. in like the same time period, you had companies like Buck, which got really big, okay. like before, like pre World War One, yeah, um, and then became immensely popular in America. But it's just it's it's been the thing about the knife is that it's it's been so unchanged for like nearly mm-hmm. hundred and fifty years that I think yeah, it's just like when you see one, even if you're not, even if you're not super aware, you can sort of you can sort of like recognize it for what it is. Like I've noticed um, because they're cheap, they tend to end up being props in a lot of movies. Okay. Like, you know, that, that, that knife Dumbledore has in the sixth Harry Potter movie that he uses to cut his hand um, to smear the blood on the stone. It's, it's. I, I can't believe I'm failing as my husband's wife right now, but no, I don't remember. <laughs> um, so he, so he, Dumbledore in the sixth Harry Potter movie cuts his hand to smear the blood on the, on the wall to, Get them into the chamber where they yeah. have to drink the horrible potion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That where the lake is. is. Okay. That knife is based on on this design. Okay. Um, I I think that for the like for that prop, they actually had Opal like make them a like a knife. custom yeah. knife, which is really cool. Um, yeah, they're just really neat. That's um, cool. Yeah. And I, I broke the tip on Ben's the other day. You did, yeah. But yeah, they're cheap, and that's sort of like. The beauty of them as well. Can't even remember what I was trying to do, but I snapped it and I was like, oh. <laughs> I'm going to have to buy another no. one of those. <laughs> I don't usually play with knives because, you know. Because you're accident prone. Real accident prone. Hmm. Really, really dangerous. To be fair, is... we don't play with knives either. We're very responsible young adults. Okay, but between Ben and Adam, they managed to have knives and not hurt themselves. I, on the other hand, have cut myself yesterday by opening a dog bone. It wasn't even on a knife. No, it wasn't even on a knife. It was on the dog bone. (laughs) And it wasn't even a sharp dog bone. Still have no idea how how I did it. How you managed to do stuff like that. God knows, except I'm my mother's daughter. Yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) I'm remembering the debit card fiasco. Yeah. Um, That's really cool. Yeah. I will. And I'm going to be fidgeting with one for the rest of the episode. Yeah. Okay. Um, We'll have to. It'll obviously be a fairly straightforward knife picture. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, when I go back and do, I'm actually about two or three cover arts behind, but I will go back and do them. Yeah. It's been a very busy few weeks, it as has. we pointed out. Yeah. Okay, so I am going to do, I was going to do, I am going to do Grinling Gibbons. I don't know what that is. Grinling Gibbons was born in April 4th, on April 4th, 1648 in mm. Rotterdam, the Netherlands. Um, and he is a integral part of British Baroque artwork. Baroque. Baroque. Barack Obama. No, Barack. Do you say Baroque? Yeah, we say Baroque in the States. B-A-R-O-Q-U-E. Yeah. We say Baroque. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. We're going to go with however it comes out, as I said. Barack. 
Um, so I'm going to, uh, well, okay, really quickly, I'm going to tell you fractionally about him, a little bit about him, but actually there's almost no information on him. So I'm going to just kind of whiz through that. And is, then that because about... is that because it was the 1640s when he was born or is it because like he? It's because he just was born, did his work and died. <laughs> like most people did in the You know what century, I mean? Like, yeah. and then we'll talk about Christopher Wren who did more than just. Okay, then die, then the, work and die. Then work and die. <laughs> uh, but I will tell you a little bit about Grenland Gibbons. Um, and I'm going to, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm going to start off by telling you a quote from Jonathan Jones in The Guardian, who wrote, was writing about Grenland Gibbons, but he started off his article with this quote. And I'm going to tell it to you because I thought it was beautifully written. Art is the aesthetic of movement. It expresses a world, a universe, in perpetual change. It is surely no coincidence that it arose and flourished in the 17th century, when European trade was spinning ever more ambitious webs around the world. As ships connected the continent, Baroque design spun out a yard of, yarn of global ambition. Very nice. I thought was, the whole article is beautifully written about him. Those are nice words. But honestly, it's also only three paragraphs, so, <laughs> you know. Um, so... Just from, I remember a quote, so I have a degree in history. I specialized in consumption of this period, consumption being what people bought, not people dying of tuberculosis. tuberculosis. Um, so I I specialized in consumption of this period. Grinnell and Gibbons being one of the highest status symbol artists of this period. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where I remember reading it. I couldn't find the quote, but someone said his carving is so delicate that the petals of the flowers blow as the wind goes through. Oh, I think you may have mentioned now that now you've seen his work. Yeah, I think. that now sounds very. It sounds more familiar to me. Now. So, so he, you've definitely said that quote before. He is a woodworker. Okay. And what he does is the most amazing carving swags. In again, using the term swag for how it's supposed to be used, which is usually the decorative art that goes either side of fireplaces, mm. um, and or columns and things like that. And he did naturalistic stuff primarily he did do cherubs and things but he could carve lace out of wood mm. like laced fabric out of wood mm. it is spectacular stuff to see and i will put some of it obviously it's cover up but he so let me tell you a bit about him he was born in the netherlands he went to england um, and took up residence in deptford um he was actually staying in one of Christopher Wren's houses at the time, mm -hmm. like cottages somewhere, and I think Wren saw him. There's a bit of a, I don't know, mythology. Someone saw him, they think Wren carving, and he said, my God, you're extraordinary. I'm going to come and... this." He still was working as a woodcarver, but like in 1671, he was taken to Charles II. It was right after the... Um, monarchy was restored. Okay. So this is around the time of the British Civil War. Um, and he was taken to Charles's new royal apartments at Windsor Castle, where he decorated Windsor Castle with all of the swag and all the wood carvings there. He then worked for William Mary at Kensington Palace and Hampton Court, which is why I know about him, because I've done a lot of work on Hampton Court. Have we taken you to Hampton Court? No, because everything's been closed down. <sighs> Seriously, the day I get to take you to Hampton Court is going to be a good day is for Hampton me. The Court the one that your is that your favorite castle? Yes, okay. it's also going to come up because Christopher Wren built it to me. Uh, so this is they were very much tied in together. Like I said, I was going to do Grenolin Gibbons, but I'm nearly done with Grenolin Gibbons, yeah. so that didn't seem long enough. So I then went with his, you know, um, he 
At St. Paul's Cathedral, he carved the choir stalls, thrones, and a great organ screen. Um, for the exterior, he carved most of the stone panels. And more well-known works include um, an ornamental screen in front of St. James's Church in London and a carved room at Petworth House in Sussex. Then he died on August 3rd. <laughs> like, seriously, that was, like, the amount of information I managed to find about him. I feel like that's him. the way it is with some, like other, like, other, like, prolific artists who just, like... The next ten pages are, are about, about Christopher, Christopher Wren. Wren. Uh, was he a bit of a party animal? <laughs> no, just... Actually, he's a... I would say... And, well, I will get to him. But anyway, that was all there was about Grinling Gibbons. It's just a name that you will never forget. I can't pronounce it for the life of me. Apparently, it was the... Apparently, his name is actually the combination of two of his family's names. Oh. Gren Ling. So oh. there was like... It must... It was it was a made-up name. Yeah, okay. For him. Um, but there's a few people at this point who had amazing names, like Capability Brown. And, oh, such a good name. I know. Um, so Susceptibility Brown. <laughs> I know. So, you know, like... He was just one of those people that, and and, and very influential despite his sort of boring life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and to the extent that once you start looking for his work, uh, there are a few of his apprentices who do very good work as well. Mm. So I think there's some of their his apprentices' work. I think in Chatsworth or Longleat. Um, but once you learn to look for his work and you walk through these palaces, it's impossible to miss. It's and it's impossible. It, the I like you couldn't get such good work if you were using a modern three D printing. Mm -hmm. Like yeah, how he manages to carve layer upon layer of lace out of a single block of wood is just mm. unbelievable. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, he's pretty spectacular and a genius in his own way. Yeah, but there's nothing known about him. So I'm going to tell you about another genius, Christopher Wren. And you mentioned that they were like. Living together at one point? Or? They knew each other. Okay. They, uh, Chris, okay, so real quick, Christopher Wren actually built St. Paul's Cathedral. He did a lot of work at Hampton Court. So they were like, yeah. best buddies. Was he more on the architecture side of the, the yeah. construction of so the building? So Wren, Wren is most famously an architect. Okay. Um, one of Wren's friend, friends, another great scientist and architect, a fellow Westminster schoolboy, Robert Hooke, said of him, since the time of Archimedes, there is scarce ever met in one man so great a perfection, such a mechanical hand, and so philosophical mind. Jeez, so flowery the language. I know, but it actually doesn't even begin to do Ren <laughs> justice. Okay. Um, so Ren, I'm going to quickly give you his kind of biography, like born, married, died, and then I'll tell you what he did. Um, he was born in Wiltshire, and uh, he was the only surviving child of a whole load of them. A lot of them died. He was pretty well off growing up like this is not a rags to riches story he seemed a little sickly when he was born but he actually didn't die until he was 90 years old which at this point mm. is like aged ancient yeah he was first taught by a private tutor and his dad was appointed dean of windsor in 1635 so he was still he was definitely following in circles of you know royalists mm -hmm. um and his family were royalists however that was about when the civil war occurred mm -hmm. so they were very much quiet not much is known of Rennet during the point of um the oh. oliver cromwell yeah stuff he obviously must have continued his education um there's a story he was at westminster school for a few years 
the schooling in this period was very different than schooling now. It wasn't like you went to a school and you went like year one, two, three, like you might go to school for like five years at one school until you'd learned everything that that's, okay. you know, it was a bit more sort of like getting degrees. Yeah. Kind sort of. of. Okay. And uh, yeah, so he, he kind of flew under the radar uh, and his whole family flew under mm. the radar during the reformation. Um, he did learn Latin and he learned to draw. And then he was also initiated, and I'm putting that in quotes because that was what it's in quotes on this, in The Principles of Mathematics by Dr. William Holder, who married Ren's elder sister, who passed away fairly soon after that, but like mm. one of his family members. Um, and he learned, he helped, um, he was taught, he was taught a lot of scientific stuff that wasn't as normal, like anatomy, neurology. He learned a lot about kind of very modern cutting edge biology, mm -hmm. which I know we're talking about an architect here, but that really wasn't where he started. Um, he went to Wadham College in Oxford where he studied Latin and the works of Aristotle. So he actually went to university of philosophy mm -hmm. and he never really received scientific training in the modern sense yeah. of the word. Um, but a lot of philosophy is very tied into science, I think, particularly in the 1600s where they were trying to, for the first time ever, differentiate the idea between, I mean, it's the age of, is like the age of beginning of enlightenment. Like mm -hmm. they're trying to differentiate the ideas of gods yeah. and God mm -hmm. versus Science. Right. Um, he received his MA in 1653 and began an active period of research and experimentation at Oxford. Um, he was then professor, appointed professor of astronomy in London at Gresham College, um, where he was required to give weekly lectures in both Latin and English to anyone who had wished to attend, and yeah. admission was free. He really enjoyed this work. Then he went back to Oxford, where... He helped set up the Royal Society, England's premium, premier scientific body. Um, and he became a member, obviously, because he helped set it up. And then although he went back to Oxford, he would come back to London very regularly to do these meetings. Um, what from there the society proposed? A society for the promotion of physico-mathematical experimental learning. Okay. Um, which got the Royal Charter from Charles II for improving natural knowledge. Okay. I know. That's, I assume biology? Yeah, that, that's the, the the confusion I'm having is what does he mean by natural? Okay. Um, so he then did a lot of science, which we'll get back into in two and a half minutes. Lots of science. Lots of science. Okay. Um, and then it was somewhere around here that he got dragged into becoming an architect. Okay. Apparently fairly normal at the time that if you were a learned person, your hobby was architecture on the side. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Um, and he had become at this point fairly well known. Charles II had, um, was aware of him because of all his scientific work that he'd been doing. And he was, and it was just after the fire of London. So he was very much in demand as an architect. We will go back to that in a minute. He was knighted in 14th of November, 1673. So he's Sir Christopher Wren. And he was a member of parliament on four occasions. He was 
people apparently were asking him to run to be prime minister, but he would never do it. Um, and it wasn't actually until 1669 that he got married for the first time. So he took a wife. I like that quite. Took her a wife. <laughs> took a wife. Mine. Who was his childhood next door neighbor, oh. Faith Coghill. Um, and little is known about her, but I'm going to read you a little bit from a love letter that I have no providence on other than it was on Wikipedia. I have sent your watch at last in envy of the felicity of it, that it should be so near your side and so often enjoy your eye. But have a care for it, for I have put a spell into it, that every beating of the balance will tell you it's the pulse of my heart, which labours as much to serve you and more truly than the watch. For the watch, I believe, will sometimes lie and sometimes be idle and unwilling. But for me, you shall be as confident in as ever. Mm. How lovely is that? That's very nice. About very, a watch. It's very romantic. I know. Um, she had two children. Um, the first one died. Then she died. <laughs> the 17th century sucked. I really it did, so didn't bad. it? Like, so like, bad. I know. He waited all this time to become like financially secure, like prominent, really? married his childhood sweetheart, wrote her letters of undying devotion. Died. And then she died. And then his mother came and took the other child. The other child that was alive, and he was essentially running around London singing Lord and Freely again. It was a very quick period of interlude where he was a happily married man. That's unfortunate. Obviously, uh, he enjoyed it, so he married another one. <laughs> love, being ma- love being married. He's going to try it again. So he tried it again Maybe with a woman named Jane. Maybe this will stick uh, apparently, it was weird because uh, no one even knew they were married until six weeks after they got married. Um, as with the first marriage, two children were born, a daughter and a William, who was a son, William. A who daughter was and a William. And a William, who was known as poor Billy because he was apparently developmentally delayed. Oh. Okay. Um, that seems not great. Unfortunately, she also died. Oh, God. I, it's, yeah. That's why people were so, like, like, uh... They were married for four years. <laughs> very, very intentional with their language. Very, like... You'll think that the watch I'm giving you is my heart because the, you had no idea when they were going to just drop dead. Yes. Uh, yeah, really. And uh, this is a sad line from Wikipedia. Uh, Ren was never to marry again. He lived to be over 90 years old. And of those years, he only managed to be married for nine. Oh, not even a tenth. Isn't that horrible? I mean. That sucks. Yeah. What a time to be alive. Yeah. So... As he got older, obviously some of his, obviously, but as happens, uh, his ideas started to become being seen as being outdated. So he started to receive um, criticism, started to lose some of his roles in Mm -hmm. the societies he was in. Uh, He was 90, going on 90, like. Yeah. um, And uh, he moved to Old Court House. His family estate was at the Old Court House in the area of Hampton Court. It's like still there. Okay. Um, and he'd been given a lease on the property by Queen Anne in lieu of salaries for building St. Paul's Cathedral. And then he also leased another house in St. James Street in London. And he died at the age of 90. He caught a chill um, while visiting St. Paul's, which was still being built. Um, and he laid down and a servant tried to wake him from a nap and found out that he had died. Where did he lay down? I see him in a bed. In the building site? No, he came home. Oh, okay. He caught a chill, which worsened over a few days, and then he just died. But he at least made it lots of years. Yeah. Um, He died on March 1st, 1723. 
Um, and he is actually um, buried in St. Paul's. Oh. Which is, you know. Pretty cool. Not unsurprising. Um, I'm going to read you his obit because, well, I'm going to read you what's written on his tombstone actually first. Here in its foundations lie the architect of this church and of its city, Christopher Wren, who lived beyond 90 years, not for his own profit, but for the public good. Reader, if you seek his monument, look around you. You're here. Yeah, talk about like... Um, yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, talk about all of that. All right, so... Talk about swag. <laughs> yeah, talk about, like... All right, so let's talk about a couple of the things that he did that were legendary and mm. left huge legacies. Um, and now I'm going to read primarily from a couple of different articles and Wikipedia stuff because I don't understand... Words. Words. <laughs> yeah. um, well, okay, I just didn't understand this sentence. Mm -hmm. When... Oh, I get it now. Oh. When a fellow of all souls, Wren, uh, when a fellow of all souls uh, constructed a transparent beehive for scientific observation, he began observing the moon, which was to lead to the invention of micrometers for the telescope. And I kind of, I think, maybe the transparent beehive, it made the... I was trying to figure out what was the... Because then he went on to invent basically lenses and the telescope. Oh, okay. I was trying to figure out what on earth... The moon, the see-through beehive had to do with like like layered glass. But now I'm thinking that maybe the beehive, if it was like a dome uh, in glass, and he would look at it, the bees would look bigger uh, or smaller, yeah. depending on whether the glass was concave or convex. Uh, maybe. And maybe that was what like inspired his does, like. Does anyone know what this transparent beehive looked like? No, but it really confused me. Um, no, that's a weird sentence. That. It was a weird sentence, yeah, right? It was a weird sentence. Uh, so he started um, determining longitude through magnetic variation and through lunar observation to help with navigation. He helped construct a 35-foot telescope with a gentleman named St. Paul Nelly. Nelly. He improved the microscope and telescope. Uh, they were both still around before then, mm -hmm. but like he massively improved them and then started to learn how to use them for navigation. Okay. He also was the first person to begin making observations of the planet Saturn in 1652. Uh, and he started writing up about the rings of Saturn, which was the first, like, idea that there were rings around Saturn. Okay, first so, like, recorded uh, sort of Yeah, of, like of... how Saturn was actually designed as mm -hmm. a planet. Um, which, this is why he was an astronomer at this point. Yeah. Um, he also apparently constructed an exquisitely detailed lunar module and presented it to the king. And then we get to another sentence that I don't understand. In 1658, he found the length of an arc of a cyclode using an exhaustion proof based on dissections to reduce the problem to summing segments of chords of a circle, which were in a geometric position. Moving on. Yeah. Uh, people were really impressed by that. I think they probably should have. Been. I think it sounds very impressive. So he then also went on to study mechanics, especially elastic collisions and pendulum motions. Uh -huh. So he... Uh, invented the idea of meteorology. Oh, wow. And he invented the tipping bucket rain gorge and designed in 1663 a weather clock that would record temperature, humidity, rainfall, and barometric pressure. Those are certainly all things. Uh-huh. He also experimented on muscle function, hypothesizing that swelling and shrinking of muscles might proceed from motion arriving from the mixture of two fluids. 
Um, although if it although this is now proved to be incorrect, it was founded upon observation and actually like it was the first time that anyone had tried to figure out why mm. muscles swole 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 swelled. And lastly, obviously, he dealt with optics. So he started working with uh, mirrors and the um, learning the idea that he could actually like glasses. Yeah, yeah. Like it wasn't really glasses, but basically the beginning of the study of the lens, like the lens stuff, right? Yeah. With the um, yeah telescopes and he studied other areas ranging from agriculture, ballistics, water, freezing, light refraction, and Thomas Birch's history of the Royal Society is one of the most important sources of our knowledge, not only from the origins of the society but the day-to-day runnings of the society that he founded. And it's because of these records that most of Ren's scientific recording. Because really, like, I mean, obviously, I just listed, everyone thinks of Ren as an architect, but Mm. I just listed a hundred ways in which he wasn't just an architect. Wasn't just an architect. And that he actually was making life in what, as we just established, was a life full of misery Misery. and death. (laughs) He started to do stuff that actually made life. Yeah, livable. More, more pleasant. More, more pleasant. You could see better. You yeah. could have a bit of understanding this way you were in the world, trying to understand the idea. It, like, he was one of the first people to start specialization of anatomy, mm. like looking at muscles, like, yeah, not just the body. The body. Okay. Um, all right. So architecture, because that's what we're here for. Um, architecture was not actually a, being an architect was not a profession. Okay. Um, oh, you said it was a hobby. It was a hobby. And. Strange. Well, you think about it, but like, um, what's the presidential one there as uh, Monticello? Yeah. Jefferson? Yes. yes. Designed, designed Monticello. Yes. Yeah. Like he wasn't an architect. Yeah. But he designed Monticello. Yeah. Um, I think it was fairly common hmm. that if you were a very educated person at that point. Um, you were just designing and building houses. Yeah, and he used to travel abroad quite a lot, France, which is where England have nicked most of their architectural stuff over the years. Um, is that true? Yeah, France. Yeah. Hmm, I didn't know that. Holland. Yeah. France. Yeah. England was just like, we'll take some of that. Yeah. Like how those buildings look. Certainly Hampton Court was very much Versailles-based. I don't know anything about Versailles. Um. So there were certain, like, the Long Lakes, which are these long lakes. lakes. <laughs> was the thing that was created in Versailles and there's one in Hampton Court. Um, Is it more of like the like the landscaping side of it or the actual design of like this? Well, Ren did... The architecture of the building. The actual architecture okay. of the building. But a good architect is working with the exteriors too. Okay. Because you want to make sure that your window's set to look down the right viewpoint, that yeah. you've got good cross breezes. You know, I think that's one of the huge differences now with the way things are built mm-hmm. now. And not well because we can move air. Yeah, but not even that. Like, um, I think, and this will certainly come up when I talk about capability brown. But the idea that windows were picture frames to the world, mm-hmm. um, and that outside every window should be some the windows should be placed so that they framed a a scene, feature a scene. Yeah, yeah, he was good at that. Capability brown. Yeah, well, he just built the scene yeah, in front he, of the window. Yeah, he like it's terraformed everything. 
he did the opposite. Um, Ren, was, Ren was good at looking out, thinking if I put a window here, it will look out onto that. Yeah. Capability Brown was like... That doesn't look at something. I'm going to put something there. I'm going to put something there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to move an entire hill. Yeah. So, like I said, through all of this um, and his use of optics and him gifting the moon to the king and stuff like that, what? he was... I told you, he designed a... a, a a planetary, I thought you meant like a mobile, like a mobile that like, because you said it was a solar system thing, right? It was a moon. It was the moon. Oh, he did moon. a detailed model of the moon oh. for the king. That's romantic. Yeah. Not as romantic as the watch, every the heart, watch. the watch heartbeat comments. That was pretty damn good. Um, so, yeah. Charles II apparently had a casual op opportunism in matching people to tasks. He just decided that people would be, like, good at something, and he just would, like... You have to do that now. Yeah. Um, so he was unofficially advising on the repair of the old St. Paul's Cathedral after it had been neglected for many years mm -hmm. and was getting rebuilt. Um, and then he went off to Paris and France and Paris in France, where he did a few things. And then while he was doing all of that, uh, there was the Great Fire of London. And... Much of London burnt down. As, as by the way, at this point, it was burning down a lot. Just, the, just the time period. As you just How said. How many times did London burn down? The Great Fire of London. So at some point, I'll talk about Samuel Pepys. It's an amazing diarist. Mm -hmm. um, but the Great Fire of London took... Weeks, right? Months. Much of London down. <laughs> okay. Um, so his first architectural project really was the chapel at Pembroke College in Cambridge. Um, which he was asked to design by his uncle, who was the Bishop of Ely. Um, then he designed the Sheldonian Theatre in Oxford. And so he, he'd not, it wasn't like he just got thrown into designing St. Paul's Cathedral, but he was the one that designed the Dome of St. Paul, which is the most iconic thing, probably one of the most iconic things in London. Mm -hmm. um, oh, here we go. Great Fire of London reduced two thirds of the city. Wow. I, that's what I mean. It like burned. The city down. Everything, yeah. including St. Paul's. So he immediately ran to, land, ran to London. Um, From yeah. Paris. I think it was in Oxford at this point. And by the way, this was September the 11th. Oh, geez. Um, he worked out a plan for basically rebuilding the whole city, um, at which point he was uh, promoted to the King's Surveyor of Work. Mm. Um, so he was actually wholly in charge of the rebuilding of London. I believe it's wow. 52 churches that he was involved in rebuilding. Um, I'm not really going to get into the rebuilding of St. Paul's. Go look at it. It's gorgeous. Um, there was, It took 32 years or something <laughs> insane. And he, his son actually was responsible for finally finishing mm -hmm. the work. Um, I think Wren died before the dome was even put on it. Okay. Um, he was very much also while he was doing this. And, and and by the way, he wasn't just rebuilding churches. He helped rebuild all the parliamentary buildings and all the other bits and pieces that came with it. But then he got brought in to rebuild by William and Mary to rebuild Hampton Court Palace, which is my favoritest thing in the whole world. Most favoritest. So Hampton Court Palace was originally built by Henry Tudor. I haven't done Hampton Court Palace, have I yet? Um, and so I'm not going to tell you too much because I will do it definitely like a dissertation. Yep. It was originally built by Henry Tudor. William and Mary wanted it modernized. I mean, we are talking hundreds of years later and the original Tudor style was like quite small and small windows and uh, they wanted the big old Versailles, yeah. like huge floor to ceiling windows. So they started rebuilding it um, with Wren. Um, 
unfortunately, Mayor William died halfway through the project. Mary died? Oh, I should know that. One of them died. <laughs> A monarch died. One of them died uh, halfway through the project. Um, as did, by the way, they were building very, very quickly and a lot of workers died too. <clears throat> so they only got about halfway through the project. So actually it's one of my reasons I love Hampton Court. It's comes driving up to the front. Mm. You see exactly what Henry Tudor would have seen. You walk through the building and you turn around and it's just like a totally different palace cool. on the backside. Because they started rebuilding it from the back forward. <laughs> okay. It's just a really cool palace. Yeah, yeah. So 91, he died. He had, uh, it says here, even the men he trained were no longer young. Right. I mean, he outlived most of his apprentices. Wow. Um, and newer, Bad luck. I know, newer generations of architects were beginning to look past Rensselaer. The Baroque school um, was beginning to come under fire from new generations that brushed Ren's reputation aside and looked beyond him to Inigo Jones, another great name <laughs> of an architect Incredible. who we will, I'm sure, talk about something. Um but they felt that his work was very unconventional at this point. And he, it, for a long time, he was, um, his influence was reduced. Okay. Uh, they, it was just like anything. He came back around. Yeah. Um, so now, of course, he is really, truly considered one of the greatest men, British Englishmen of all time, mm -hmm. both with his architectural stuff and with his, uh, thing and now obviously all his buildings his old buildings have all been listed for a very long time yeah. that's not uh, yeah. the case it's not like anyone was like ugh that's a ran oh, pull it down. down pull down St. Paul's but as he's the maturity of the designs he did the classic elegance of what mm. he was designing along with the fact that they are slightly quirky I guess in some respects like they're not always symmetrical Okay. although Hampton Court is pretty yeah. Uh, symmetrical but like he did he wasn't I think I think as it later got you got later you were talking about trained architects yes so of course they're going to look back on like a hobbyist who only built 52 churches only oh, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and um, yeah apparently by historical accident all of Wren's large scale secular commissions dated after 1680 I'm not sure how that's considered by accident but um, he also did a lot of individual stuff. He designed the Chelsea Hospital. Oh. Um, and he designed a king's house in Winchester where the Charles II had hoped to die. Um, but it was never completed before Charles died. Uh, hoped to die. It was a, he built it as a retirement home. Okay. I don't know. Maybe it was a bungalow. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so he just, he basically, every king, he must have just been a really nice guy. Yeah. Because every king and queen used him basically the whole time he was alive. Mm -hmm. um, and he is, uh, his, for instance, St. Paul's Cathedral can be seen in the ch uh, church of St. Geneva in the Pantheon. Uh -huh. Now known as the Pantheon, yeah. as it's very similar to St. Paul's. There are other versions inspired by Renstone from St. Isaac's in St. Petersburg. So he influenced Russian architecture and the US Capitol Dome. It's the dome. In DC, which we all saw very recently. <laughs> so while there was a while there that he was considered very passe, mm -hmm. um, he became very he became very popular and influential all around the world. It was one of the few architectural, English architectural styles um that was actually that went internationally. globally.
Yeah, I mean, the Americans nicked the cheetah stall and turned it into hideousness. Yeah. But, okay, that's... That's him. him. That's him. Cool. Um, he's pretty epic. Yeah, I like that. I like architects, especially when they're hobbyists. He's a hobbyist architect who actually developed the telescope, worked with optics, built a biometric clock, started meteorology. Yeah. Meteorology. Not really, a, not really an architect. Really, the fact that he was an architect is so low on his list. I believe... Um, at one point, his face was also on British money. Oh. Which is where the banknote thing came in. Oh, right. I think during the early 1900s, he was on the back of the five pound note. Okay. Weird, but makes because sense. Because he's one of our greatest people yeah. that no one's ever heard of. <laughs> I had certainly never heard of him. I know. And it all started with Grinnelling Gibbons. And next week, I'll do Inigo Jones and Capability Brown. No, I'm lying. No, we'll do not. those in a few weeks. Oh, I'm so, teasing. Oh, okay. I'm teasing. Yeah, and Ben just stepped in. You've been elected to join us for another episode again. You're going to do The Tulip Fever. Yeah, that's a big book. That is a big book. You don't have to read the whole book. I might do something else. Okay. No. Gardens. I thought you were going to do Tulip Fever. Mm-hmm. I don't even like gardening. Maybe I'll do like Edwardian and Victorian like... Plant fever when people went like all around the world. Okay. Plants. That's how we ended up discovering loads of places. Isn't that how yeah. we did? We did. We did. Plant, we did do plant we hunting. Did plant As obvious by the fact that Ben listens to our podcast. You guys don't listen to my podcast. Go listen to a golf podcast. You guys. I do listen care. to a golf. Guys, podcast. for if you are into golf, go listen to the Swingdom Ben's podcast. Uh, all right. So thanks for tuning in for that episode. Yep. Uh, next week we'll be coming back with a bit of a. A, a different recap, one. A recap episode. So that'll be interesting for us, I think. Yeah, I think it's going to be really cool. More yeah. more of a chat. It's kind of neat that uh, a lot of this... And I think, obviously, we wouldn't be aware of it if we weren't doing this podcast. Like, if I had seen the article about Dyatlov Pass um, and I hadn't done any research on it in the first place, I wouldn't have cared. No, so. and I will do I will do a thing about how Netflix is stealing all my podcast episodes. Yeah, they really, really are doing that. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that'll be, that'll be fun. Um, and if you have anything specifically that you want to hear, yeah, if you've, if you've heard anything new about any of our topics, let us know and we'll do some research or send us your research and we'll read it out on the air. Yeah. And guys like review, subscribe, tell your friends, most importantly, tell your grandma. All right. Bye. Bye.